0: this is recording. RTI
1: International Center for Forensic. presents Just Science.
0: Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 7 of the identification season, Just Science interviews Carlos Gutierrez, a lecturer at Shamanad University of Honolulu, about the new field of forensic microanthropology. After finding an unidentified bone, forensic anthropologists must determine if it belonged to a human or an animal. If it's an animal bone, they can move on to other casework, but human remains require a much more involved and sometimes more expensive forensic processes. For developing countries, these tests can be too expensive and time-consuming. With limited resources and tight timelines, Carlos Gutierrez wanted to find an affordable and timely way to analyze remains and differentiate between human and animal bones. It was through this need that forensic microanthropology was born. Listen along as he discusses the details of forensic microanthropology in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
1: And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We are at the International Association for Identification meeting in beautiful and hot San Antonio, Texas. And today we are with Carlos Gutierrez, who is uh, with the Chaminade University of Honolulu. He's going to be talking to us about forensic micro- anthropology, a new field of forensic science. Welcome to the program, Carlos.
2: Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah. having me here. Carlos
1: has a very unusual background in uh, the sense that he has uh, 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 been educated on many continents, uh, but he uh, started off in Chile. You grew up in
2: Chile? I'm born in Chile. and grew up in Chile. I am a retired police officer from, uh, from the National Police Agency in Chile called Carabineros de Chile. I retired as a captain there. Yeah, okay. I worked in the, in the forensic lab there for almost 20 years. Oh,
1: wow. So I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here.
2: In 2002, earned his
1: certificate, Reforma Procesal Penal y Sus Affectos en la Función Policial. Oh,
2: good. Is yeah, that close? Really Criminal yeah. Procedure
1: Reform and its Impact on Police Function. And uh, you've also trained in Argentina, Germany, Spain, and the United States. So you've, you've been around, and I think you'd have an interesting perspective. Before we get into the microanthropology, what are the differences that you've seen, for example, in forensic services in Chile and kind of the expectation of police versus what you see here in the
2: United States? Yeah, I have the luck to join and have all this background from different countries and get the studies in different um, places as well but yeah it's kind of different because in Chile we, we start with this change of the criminal justice they change everything writing to the oral process with defense, defensor, attorney, and everything, like, like here in America. We we just started in Chile in 2002, 2003. Mexico new. is going through a change now yes. where they're going through a
1: similar process where yes. you have more an adversarial system. So you didn't yeah. have an adversarial system before 2002? No.
2: Okay. no. <laughs> like an, everything in Latin America was uh, supposed to be provisory of the old system, but they stay for almost 200 years. Yeah, uh, like inquisitorial, basically. Inquis- yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. And they changed in 2002 in Chile, and after that, almost all countries now in, in, in Latin America, they have this uh, accusatory system that, of course, is much better, but also they provide, and the evidence is more important right now with this, this system. The, all the, the criminal uh, process, the crime investigation, the chain of custody, everything changed we don't have the, the way we, you have here in America to, the, I don't know, the defense. Or, that, that is brand new for, for Latin America. That's why I traveled a lot to provide this new knowledge with Shaminat University and also with True Forensic Sciences to go to different countries in Latin America and teach them. This new way, the, the, I mean, it's, it's new, not new for America, but for us as a Amer- Latin American, is is kind of new. All the the scientific part. I just back from the from Argentina. They had the first Latin American conference from uh, blood pattern analysis analyst, and that is new. I mean, mm-hmm. th- that association... So they never had a blood stain no, pattern no, no, in all of Latin America? In all Latin America. I mean, wow, that okay. is new. The, uh, everyone knows the association born in uh, 1983, but in, in 2018 was the first meeting in Latin America. I mean, we are really stepped back from the rest of the country, and that is when I took uh, as a personal uh, goal, a mission to provide this new knowledge from all Latin America as much as I
1: can. Okay. Well, good for you. That's uh, that's amazing stuff. Because there has been variation among the different Latin American countries. I mean, uh, Colombia and. Uh, Guatemala and others have, uh, at least from the American perspective, they have come up on saying, well, those are countries that have actually worked on trying to improve Ecuador at one time. I, I thought it was trying to really work on their forensic science. So it's good to see it's actually broadening out across the entire continent.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty good. They work a lot and try to improve everything. And, of course, the budget always is a an issue, and yes. especially for developing countries. And they try to work in, in the best way they can, they can do it. With- the resources they have, but they understand they need to change some of the um, the head of the agencies still with the old system, and they sometimes don't understand the the importance of the crime scene or all this part of the of the new system. But yeah. They take so, some time. So uh, forensic microanthropology.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that. Listeners to Just Science know we've actually had another individual from Shamanad University on David Carter talked a little bit about his work with respect to using microbial populations pre and postmortem and matching those up. Uh, so you all have actually are doing a fair amount of work in anthropology at Shamanad, Is that yes. right?
2: Yes. We we work with with Dave. Dr. Carter is actually the director of the Forensic Science program on Shaminar University. I am a lecturer there. Uh, I teach crime Investigation. I'm part of Forensic Anthropology and of course Forensic macroanthropology. We make a really good team now with Dr. Pro as well. She is expert in, in VOCs and, and we work in a lot of new stuff post-mortem to establish the, the interval post-mortem with more accuracy. The forensic migrant topology, I developed this this new field um, because I had a lot of cases in Chile. In Chile, as well as in different countries in, in Latin America, we had a dictatorship as a government for mm-hmm. a long period of, of times. And also, we have a lot of missing people. And now, for example, in Mexico, they have, for other reasons, more uh, missing people as well. They have more than uh, 30,000 missing people. and. And of course, our countries don't have the resources to do DNA for any remains you find at the crime scene, right. because you don't know if it's a human or not human. Even you don't know if it's a bone or not when the, the, the evidence is too fragmented. The idea with, with this forensic microanthropology was born because I had a lot of cases, as, as I told you before. And in one case, they found some remains in one military property. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you find some remains in military property, right away the press, the media is there, the family for missing people is there, the office of human rights, every everybody. And in that case, happened in, in 2013. I went there. My boss told me, asked me, is born or not? Uh, yeah, look like born. Is human or not? I don't know. Why you don't know? You are the expert. Blah blah blah. Yeah, but I don't know. I need to more analysis or go further or mostly doing DNA, mitochondrial DNA, to know if it's a human or not. We took the evidence we sent to the lab in Chile for mitochondrial DNA. You just have one lab for whole country. And of course, it's one sample from all the, the cases they have. And they took five months to give us the answers. The answer was an animal bond. Okay. The issue was during this five months, the family of the victims was waiting. The press was waiting. Of course, they stopped the, the construction until they have the result and all the extra pressure you have for these kind of cases. And I thought in that moment, we are in the 21st century. I mean, we can create something. And that pa- uh, passed the time and I- I'm moving in here to Hawaii to do my-, my Master in Forensic Sciences. When I went in, in Chamina as a student, as a graduate student, I started asking to Dr. <coughs> Carter about this. I met other um, doctors from the old JPAG, now the- it's the- called DIPA. The DIPA is the, the-, the Forensic Lab for- from the Department of, of Defense of-, of the United States. It's located in Hawaii, in Honolulu. And they received all the Remains for missing soldiers, and uh, for example, they received a few days ago. The, the oh, from North Korea. From, North Korea. Exactly, from North Korea, exactly. and they, they yeah. work in the identification process. And they have something; they have more equipment, and and with them and shamina I make my research. And this research took two years, and uh, I had a really good result. I took 14 species to make this research. More than 150 samples I did during these two years, but I, I used, in comparison to the, the equipment they have, I need to use the equivalent but cheaper, because I, I always thought, okay, this is applicable to Latin America, small budget, small labs, always had need uh, money for resources, and I need to, it needs to be make be something this. where
1: you could be able to do it, maybe just looking at morphology, right. microscopy,
2: right. something very simple you don't want them to have to do exactly. DNA analysis exactly. before 16 something. sRNA
1: every last time, right?
2: Exactly, and that's way I got this forensic microanthropology I wrote my book they published my book in 2016 after the my work on my study was done
1: and it's a beautiful book we oh, have it you. here on the table
2: you no. in Spanish the first uh, it is in Spanish yeah.
1: initially so that I did take enough Spanish <laughs> not to know anything basically yeah but it's a beautiful picture on the front is that an actual picture from, from some the of book. the microanthropology yeah. uh, That's a human bone is that a human b- that's human bone yeah
2: uh, the idea for published this this book in Spanish was first because the Latin American people have more issues with that and they're dealing with the lack of money, especially for doing this. And that is the idea. This is a huge help for, uh, for them. This moment, uh, a lot of agencies that are working on forensic anthropology. they apply this technique. The idea is, the definition of forensic anthropology is the mix between the forensic anthropology and the, the histology mixed together using the polarized microscope to see the features they have the bond and you can identify really quick in less than one day you, can, you have the answer and you can say it's human or not human. Of course, if it it's human, you can send to do DNA and the family and the victims can wait. It's not human because it's closed and that's it. So tell me about the theory
1: behind the microanthropological examination. What exactly was the basis for your approach here to distinguish between the different species?
2: All these species after this, I found some research. Actually, I found a thesis for PhD degree, but from the 1916. 1916? The, yeah, the beginning. That's only a 100 the, years ago. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From was a doctoral thesis from Dr. Foods and they describe some difference uh, between the human and other human bones, but they use frogs and other, uh, other animals. But of course in 1916, don't have microscope with cameras or nothing, and they draw everything. And that kind of research was really limited with just one bone and a few other samples from other animals. The idea from this research, of course, is using the technology, using uh, other uh, really easy equipment you can buy, I don't know, in Home Depot or whatever store you have, and using the, the polarized microscope and the polarized light to see the features of the histology of the bone, And you can see the difference between the human and non-human. Of course, in some cases are more difficult because our, the human is an animal who the grow up is really slow. Of course, in other animals are slow too, but no, slow. Uh, the, the human is slower. For example, a horse. And you can see similarities, but of course you can see the difference as well. Let's take an easy analogy,
1: tree rings, right? So basically the rings of growth of the bone demonstrate that the, the human is growing more slowly than other animals. And so you can basically kind of reconstruct how fast the person grew. And you don't have to go to that length, I assume, but, but the,
2: yeah, it's, the morphology It's kind of represents doing that. some comparison using the morphology between the human and other animals. For example, other animals have uh, other features like uh, a bone because it, that is exclusive, for example, for animals. If you have this lamellar bone in your samples as evidence, you can exclude immediately that it's not human. Then you close the case. Okay, It's easy like that. Quick, like, so that's uh, just a, a macro examination right, of the bone right, in that case. Right, okay. right. Because the idea for uh, forensic anthropology, the anthropologists on the main question they need to, to answer for attorney or defense or whatever, is one or not. After that, is human or not human. But what's happening if they just have a fragment. They cannot say it's a human or not, or it's a bone or not. That's why the forensic micro start working, give quick answer, give quick answer for the families also. That is most important, and, and provide this information right away. You can work in the field. You can bring your polarized microscope. That's it. Because in most cases,
1: the bone will be an animal bone, right? And so that also helps you to prioritize, because it's even more than it's just going to take five months. It's like, do you really want to spend that much time on something that is an animal bone? Whereas if it's a human bone, okay, now I know something. I know I know that there's a value to going to that next level and trying to do more, the more difficult, expensive forensic analysis.
2: Right. That, that is a, the, the main thing. And also, for example, the, to do mitochondrial DNA, one analysis is cost around the average, of course, $1,000 to $2,000, one sample each. I mean, with Forensic Microanthropology, you spend $30, $20, $30. That is the main difference, I mean, it's... So what, tell me which uh, species you were uh,
1: looking at. Which, you said you looked at yeah. 14 different species. Yeah. Yeah. So, in addition to humans. We use
2: uh... uh, horse, dog, cat, some um, mm-hmm. goat, uh, swine, different normal animals you can find in every place. And we use uh, some studies from uh, the medical examiner office to, and they, with that study, we know Okay, this is more frequently kind of bone the, or the remains they can find at the cremine and they do in DNA. Okay, and we try to figure out and looking for this kind of uh, samples to do this comparison. Yeah, very interesting. Did you
1: do any uh, animals that were unique to Latin America? You know, alpacas or Lama. Llamas? llamas? Llamas, yeah. Oh, I'm, yeah llamas I'm trying include, to my Yeah, species. yeah, yeah, no, it's
2: fine, mm-hmm. right, but uh, llamas included in, in the book. Is it? I, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've, I have uh, the opportunity to have this kind of sample, and, yeah, I include the llama. Uh, of course, I include the Is is one species we have in Hawaii. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. It's so, special yeah. For opossum as well. We have a really good, uh, fun time to to try to collect these samples and... Was really hard, but. And the biggest problem really generally tends
1: to be some of the. I assume like a swine or cattle bone would be the hardest ones to distinguish in general, uh,
2: or not. We thought the same, but was the easiest one because they have some unique features just for animal, and they can exclude right away from the human. Okay. Was a, was a really good one. Mm -hmm. to analyze. Our next step with uh, True Forensic Science and Chamina University is working with a non-profit organization in in Latin America, especially in Mexico. Uh, In Sinaloa we are working on one organization called uh, Sabuesos Guerreras. This organization is created for moms or wives from missing people in, in this state in Mexico and they don't know nothing about forensic science and nothing. They just go to the field and try to recover something about and Looking sure. for, for their relative in the last search they did, they found more than, more than five thousand fragments of evidence, and they don't know if it's are, are human or not, and we are working with them to try to get the the financial to bring the, the samples to the university and start analyzing the the evidence there. Okay. What's the next step here? And are there
1: differences that might be helpful in terms of identification with respect to looking at the microanthropology of the bones? Uh, And seeing things about, like, the history of the person or doing other things that might be helpful with identification once you know they are human. Uh, Do you think that that there might be some other applications here?
2: Yeah, the idea is continue with this research. This is the first research, the first huge databases in, in, in the world. I mean, the idea is continue with this. Me, other students, I teach this technique and all the, my students on Chaminade University who study forensic sciences. At the moment, I have 51 students trained in this field. And the idea is they continue with the different research. and do try to looking for disease, fractures, I don't know, age. Sure. Different. The sky is, is, is the limit. Yeah, but the idea now is, for us also is focused to help in cases especially in uh, Latin America or in every everywhere on every place in the world they need to uh, this technique can help we are more than open to to receive them of course always the budget on the money is is, is is an issue especially for for other countries but we are trying to work and get some grants or I don't know sure.
1: Well, the flip side of it too, which would be interesting, would be the animal trafficking because uh, that's also an issue. You have a horn or a bone or something like that and you're not sure whether it's involved in trafficking in that regard. And there's actually a lot of interest in that, not only because of trying to save the species, but also because there's a nexus between animal trafficking and things like terrorism and so on. (laughs) And so that sounds like a great application as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. Our idea, this manual is going to be published in English this year but our idea for the second edition on the, on further is to get more samples from different species or different cases, and try to apply for different for different areas like animal traffic. All this stuff is is going to be great opportunity to apply this this new technology. Sure,
1: <laughs> appreciate your uh, taking the time to be a part of our program.
2: No, thank you so much for for the invitation for having me here. For me, it's a it's a great opportunity to everybody can know this this work. I mean, this a, a it's like a, my baby. <laughs> uh, it, it was
1: a, a lot of work. Carlos Gutierrez from Chaminade University of Honolulu uh, has been our guest today on Just Science. Thank you all for listening in. Please make sure to go on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple and give us five-star ratings and tell everyone about how much they can learn by tuning in to an episode of Just Science. Thank you very much for listening today.
0: Next week, Just Science interviews Selena McKay-Davis lead senior forensic specialist at the Riverside Police Department, about job-related stress for civilian forensic technicians and sworn peace officers. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.